Mud Stories, Episode 79. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. And I had to sit before them and say, whether I said it or not, tell you how sorry I am and how wrong I've been um, in many respects for really pushing religion on on people and and pointing to that the good and evil being plugged into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil man this is the damage religion does this is the damage that can be done by pointing to anything but a God of grace and redemption and mercy um, and telling people that they can be better by jumping through these hoops or doing these things uh, when that's not God's message at all. For the most part, what we found was a lot of people trying to be better so that God would be happier. God doesn't get happier with better behavior. And they've lost so many years trying to be better for God when they didn't have to be better for God. God loved them as they were. Um, No questions asked. He is the most um, welcoming and affirming uh, part of Christianity. He is He is God and He is good. And though we don't understand it, and though we all come at it from different theologies and different understandings, um, the fact is God is bigger and we're going to do the only thing that we know that He's called us to do, and that is love Him and love people. Hi, my name is Jackie Watkins, your host, and you're listening to Mud Stories, a podcast dedicated to bringing you inspiration in your muddiest moments, hope to make it through your mud, and encouragement for you to know that you are never alone. Hey friend, welcome back to the Mud Stories podcast. I am so glad you're here, and if this is your first time joining us at Mud Stories, welcome. I'm so thankful you've chosen to spend some time with us today to link arms together and walk through some muddy things so that we can know and remember that we're not alone, and there is always, always hope. And so today we are continuing with part two of our conversation with Alan and Leslie Chambers. Now, I will say if you have not heard part one of our conversation with them, you must go back. This conversation is not going to make any sense if you haven't heard part one. And so we will wait for you here. No worries. We will be here when you get back. Just pause this episode and go back. You can find it at JackieWatkins.com forward slash episode 78. And uh, they had so much to share. And we're going to pick back up in the middle of our conversation with them. And I'm going to be honest, we're going to dive right in with the hard stuff, with the obvious stuff, with the uncomfortable questions that I know you all are wondering. And so this first question, I don't want it to take you by surprise, but you know, Alan has had the struggle of same-sex attraction, and yet he has been married to Leslie for over 18 years. And so my obvious question that starts this episode is, how did that transition happen? How did you go from being a gay man with same-sex attraction to now living in a heterosexual marriage all these years? Help us understand. And so that is where we start. And so it is my delight to bring to you not only that topic, but all kinds of other things we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about how sex does not equal intimacy, how we all have sexual struggles no matter our past. Leslie's going to share about the chapter that she wrote about their wedding night and their honeymoon. You guys, you are not going to want to miss this. I mean, so transparent, so real. I just am so thankful for Alan and Leslie for all that they stand for and all that they've written. Uh, We are going to dive into his interview with Lisa Ling and the documentary that was released uh, to the national media, hearing the stories of people who had been hurt by the church, hurt by Exodus International, and the pivotal change that happened for Alan and Leslie that contributed to shutting down the ministry of Exodus International. We're going to talk about reparative therapy, what that meant, 
uh, what it means for us today, how we can make sense of all of this, and how oftentimes we hold the LGBT community to a different standard than we hold for ourselves. I hope this issue challenges you. I hope that it makes you think. I hope it stops you in your tracks and helps you reconsider some of the ways that you've processed this topic, some of the ways that you've chosen to have bias or judgment in your own heart. I know we're all people who judge others. And let's just not only admit that tendency, but let's move through it and toward it. We can't face it and we can't get better and do better and love well without at least acknowledging the problem and then moving forward from there. And so my hope with this episode, and I know it's the heartbeat of Alan and Leslie's heart for all of us to accept and embrace the grace of God that is ours through Christ, no matter what we've done, no matter where we've been, no matter what we're going to experience in the future, no matter what choices we make, good or bad, God's love never fails. His mercies are new every single morning. Great is his faithfulness to us. And he is our example. And because of Christ, we are forgiven no matter what. And so let's live in that. Let's embrace that. Let's champion that message. And let's be a people who not only love God, but who love others well. And so it's my delight to present to you part two of our conversation with Alan and Leslie Chambers. Here we go. Well, I loved your transparency and your vulnerability in sharing your story and how you aren't prescriptive, but inclusive in desiring to engage with the hearts of people who are hurting. And yet, I want to be the voice for people who are wondering, uh, because I think you are the people in the context of this loving conversation that can help teach us how to be more loving and how to have more grace, even when we want to hold um, the theological convictions that we hold. And so I'm wondering, prior to your relationship with Leslie and your decision to uh, you know, explore a celibate life. Was that because you were convicted that gay sex was wrong for you, uh, for all people? Or was your experience when you had sexual encounters with other men shaming and displeasurable? Or help us understand your move there before you were even open to an encounter with Leslie as a human being, soul to soul, you know? Yeah, you know, I I came from a theological understanding of of scripture that homosexuality, sexual encounters with anyone who wasn't your opposite sex, married monogamous partner, was sin. Um, and so, as a um, a teenager and an early twenty something, uh, my conviction was um, there is no other option for me um, but to be celibate. You know, and 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 I think my encounters. Um, they weren't in loving, committed, monogamous relationships. They were born out of um, a gaping hole in my soul for someone to affirm me and to and to love me. And you don't yeah. find you don't find love and affirmation and um, monogamy and um, mutuality and all of those things in in a gay bar. Um, you don't find those in in the in the places where I found. Um, sexual encounters. And so, no, they weren't satisfying. They were full of shame. Um, and I don't want to make that um, something that says there isn't ever a time when gay and lesbian people can't find love and, um, and all of those things in a much deeper way than I found it. But for me, um, that isn't what I found. Um, I found I was desperate and I was looking for anything to feel better. It was more a medication, a drug, if you will, than it was looking for um, a lasting relationship. Um, And that's why I I, I was grateful that God showed up when he did, or I recognized that he showed up when he did um, and said, this is not how I created you to live. I I created you for peace and for intimacy with me first and to understand true intimacy um, and true love really is, because um, you're never going to be able to experience it with another person unless you've experienced it with me first. And that's what I found in, in between my wanderings and Leslie. Um, I found 
an intimacy with God the Father that changed my life forever. Yeah. Well, and also, I will say you write that beyond our intimacy with God, we can have intimacy with each other, but sex does not equal intimacy. Exactly. And I love how, Leslie, you write so transparently. Y'all have to get this book to read what she says because she's not going to... She's not going to be able to say all of it here because, uh, you know, we don't want to be a spoiler. That's but right. We don't want to be a spoiler. But you write about your wedding night, uh, January 3rd, 1998. You two were married. And yet you had conversations prior to being married talking about the uh, elephant in the room, the consummation of a marriage, uh, which incidentally isn't a unique conversation between the two of you. It happens for uh, many mm-hmm. of us who get married, right? It's, it's, yeah. it's anxiety producing uh, to experience something that you've never experienced before. And yet I love how Alan, um, how you write about Alan's comments to you about his suggestion that, you know, maybe the third night would be good. Maybe, you know, because he described to you about how the other encounters that he'd had before were transactional and not satisfying and that he honored and cherished you so much that he didn't want that for your relationship. Um, Can you talk a little bit about what you wrote about in that chapter and um, the challenge that it's been as you've moved forward in marriage all these years to have people want to define your relationship in terms of your sexuality when maybe nobody tries to do that to my husband and me. Right, right. Yet that's, I've, I've had people ask me why we wrote that chapter. Well, why? I loved that you wrote that chapter. <laughs> yeah. It was yeah. very brave and it made me feel close to you. Yeah. I could relate. And, and, I, and I, that's, that's why we did it. <laughs> we wrote that chapter knowing that if we let people in to that part of our life, that hopefully it would be a trust builder. We talk all the time with our kids about trust builders and trust destroyers. And, and my hope is that that chapter, when we talk about that, that it's, that it's a trust builder. And, you know, it was, it was difficult to, to go through. And yet there was a safety and a security in our relationship that, so that when we did go through that, it, neither one of us were about to jump ship. We just were in the ship together um, on the on the wavy seas, if you if you will, because your intimacy was not based on sex. It was based on heart seen intimacy of one other's souls. Yes. Yeah. Yes. And as much as Alan was convinced right away that we would spend the rest of our lives together, I eventually got to that place myself. I I prayed the whole time we were engaged. God, I think this is you. If it's not, please guide me down a different path. And you know, to the point where that was my prayer, getting ready the, the morning of our wedding. I, I was praying as I was putting on my, my mascara. Okay, God, you're going to have to do something kind of big here and get me in a you know, car accident or something like that. But if if this isn't the path that you would have me walk, then then I need you, you know, to, to redirect my path. And at the end of that day, we were married. I, I knew that was, was our life. It was going to be me and Alan for the rest of my life. And so with, you know, the next 72 hours, you know, some interesting things happened. And then even for the next couple of months, or should I say, didn't happen. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> They'll have to read about it. Intimacy happened. Sexual connection happened. It did. It did. Yes. And, and we grew extremely close to each other during that time. We were together in every sense of the word during that time. And you know, it, it's difficult to talk about. It was yeah. difficult to give my mom the chapters for her to read, <laughs> or my, you know, my mother-in-law. Oh goodness, you know. Uh, so it it's been um, it's one of those things that's just another part of our story, and right. it just is. It's just what made it up. And like you said at the beginning, it's been amazing to me the number of people, both husband and wife you know, didn't have Alan's story, both heterosexual or whatever. There are struggles out there. People have huge, yep, huge struggles and issues and complexities and baggage that you bring in and baggage that you 
create while you're there and, you know, it's, or that you pick up and it's just, um, we have found that bringing God even into that aspect of our marriage was at times kind of a weird thing, <laughs> you, yeah. but a beautiful thing. Beautiful. And he is a part of everything that makes us up. And, and that includes that sexual relationship between us as man and wife. It's just, and mm-hmm. it, it's a weird thing to talk about or to think about, but it's a beautiful thing that we've talked to him about even that. And we should, and we should talk to one another. I think, uh, you know, this is not a unique struggle. And one of the reasons I'm glad you wrote about it is because, you know, I talk to a lot of people who have muddy, muddy places with sexual sin in their lives, in their past. And irregardless of the circumstance of the individual that you're involved with, you know, God gave us sex to really shape our character and to help us learn to communicate with each other and see one another. And he meant for it to be a lifetime exploration and learning experience. And what I love is that you share about how you took the time to build those layers of foundation one at a time, which eventually has made it all the more satisfying and fulfilling, um, which is true for all of us, you know, no matter what our past challenges have been or our past mud prior to getting married. Yes. You know, Um, Alan, I was able to read about and view some of your special documentary that Lisa Ling did in 2013. And I'd love to spend a little bit of time talking to you about that and what you learned and what happened and how it changed you because even viewing it changed me. Mm -hmm. And um, just the way that the pain that people have, um, the way they shared their shame and brokenness and the years of abuse and spiritual manipulation and the ways that um, the church has inflicted pain and and um, damage to human hearts that are loved by God and created in His image. Can you share just a little snippet of what you learned that night and how it changed things for you? Yeah, the, the interview everyone saw, I think, was a, a typical 56-minute, including commercials, um, sort of show. But we, Leslie and I, spent three hours and 25 minutes um, in a basement with about 12 other people, some of who hated us, hated me, for sure, mm-hmm. um, for what I represented um, at Exodus. Well, because you were the president. Catch him up so was, on that part. You were the, the president. president. I was right. the president of Exodus International from 2001 until 2013. And, and tell them how, what the ideology that had been, I mean, I, we, we referred to it earlier, but tell them the ideology that Exodus kind of promoted and why the hate would be there. Sure. Exodus was founded in 1976. And I, again, I got involved in 91, took over the ministry in 2001. And for many years, Exodus, well, for every year, Exodus was a conglomeration of a number of different types of theologies and thoughts, but all centered around um, the fact that we theologically believed homosexuality was a sin. Um, And within Exodus were a number of different beliefs about how to combat that, whether someone could completely eradicate themselves of of same-sex attractions or gay feelings, Um, Some people believed in a process called reparative therapy, which um, dealt with what they considered to be the roots of homosexuality, a a distant father, an overbearing mother, sexual abuse, um, all sorts of of things. Well, they did have a prescription, really, to cure someone of their homosexuality. And, And while for years we would say, you know, we don't believe there's a cure what we what we came to understand about reparative therapy way too many years into our um, partnership with those who were doing that type of, of of work was they really did believe in a cure they did believe that they could cure someone of of um, their their sexual orientation and make them straight and in 2012 we um, repudiated that practice, um, apologized for being a, a part of it, um, and distanced ourselves from it. Well, 2013, as I'm sitting in this room with uh, these people who called themselves and were survivors of um, 
of reparative therapy or what they considered the ex-gay movement, um, they told horror stories of, of things that they endured and, and things that they went through. Uh, some of them before my time um, at Exodus, um, a couple of them uh, were leaders who um, later left the organization and embraced uh, their gay identity. And, and so here they were in this room sharing their heartaches and the things that they endured, whether it was in their church or a ministry that they were involved in. Um, and it was, it was devastating to hear their stories. One man who had been involved in Exodus back in the, the 1980s, um, he was married, he had two children, one of his children died, and he and his wife were estranged at the time because he had come out as gay. Um, and his pastor, um, along with his wife, barred him from his child's funeral. Mm. Um, and so here he is telling this story and just saying, you know, this is what the church did to me. And this is what, even though that wasn't Exodus, this is what Exodus represents. Um, this is what the church represents because Exodus really was born out of a need in the church to address this, um, this issue. And, um, and, and it wasn't always, um, a, a positive thing that Exodus, um, represented. I felt Exodus was positive in my life and the, the office that I ran in Orlando with 25 staff members um, and the conferences we put on every year seemed life-giving. Um, there were heartaches and um, that, that were difficult um, to hear. Um, yeah. Stories of, of people who um, had been uh, manipulated and marginalized and, and given messages that weren't the messages that, that I ever intended to or wanted to convey. And yet, you know, I could look and, and remember poor choices that I'd made in interviews and, and speaking that had perpetuated um, that shame in other people's lives. And, and I had to sit before them and say, whether I said it or not, tell you how sorry I am and how wrong I've been um, in many respects for really pushing religion on, on people and, and pointing to that, the good and evil, being plugged into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and causing people great sadness and, and for standing up um, and pointing to Leslie and me as, as some sort of example that someone should live by um, mm -hmm. or, a, or story that they could or should attain. And we realized, man, that's, we've hurt people. Um, we've caused people great shame for, believing that they could become something that they haven't become um, and believing that who they are um, is less than um, we are. And that's, that's a hard place to sit and a hard reality to, um, to understand. Um, but we sat there in that room that, that day and heard stories that we'll never forget. And I never want to go back to a room like that again, but I, I'm eternally grateful that I sat there, um, that Leslie was there with me and that we realized Man, this is the damage religion does. This is the damage that can be done by pointing to anything but a God of grace and redemption and mercy yeah. um, and telling people that they can be better um, by jumping through these hoops or doing these things um, when that's not God's message at all. Well, and the thing about it is when we really get truthful with our own hearts and realize that sin is sin, God, no matter, you know, if somebody is you know, year after year cheating on their taxes, <laughs> you know, um, being dishonest in their relationships or, you know, harboring an angry spirit in their heart or hostility or, you know, there's all kinds of sin, all kinds of sin. And um, God is our judge. I think what it's hard for people to understand who who still hold to the theological conviction that sex outside of monogamy in a heterosexual relationship that's called marriage, that sex outside of that is wrong. It's hard for them to understand the tension of love and yet holding to convictions. And I'm wondering if explaining to us a little bit about how you discovered that reparative therapy didn't work or wasn't really, you know, because a lot of times we're just doing the best we know. We're just doing the best we can. And um, what I love about what you chose was to, in humility, say, I'm so, so sorry, and I'm here, and I want to listen 
to your heart. And that's what we should all be doing. But um, sometimes those intellectual things snag us up and not understanding. So can you help us understand about why the reparative therapy changed for you, that philosophy? Sure. You know, we, I, I think we in the church have held gay and lesbian people to a standard that we don't hold for ourselves. You know, we have yeah. hijacked um, Corinthians 5.17 that says, those who are in Christ are a new creation. The old is gone and the new has come. And we hijack that verse to mean once you come to Jesus, everything is better. Um, everything is different. And, and it is different because we're new creations irrevocably. Um, but we all continue to be human. We all continue to have a flesh. That's right. um, and I think so oftentimes we in the church have um, looked at gay and lesbian people and, and thought, okay, well, they chose this um, and we can fix them. And that's certainly where I think reparative therapy and, and so much of the ex-gay movement evolved to was – the Bible says it's a sin, therefore, we're going to take 1 Corinthians 6, verse 11, but such were some of you, and we're going to make a whole ministry or a whole lifestyle out of that and fix people, and we're going to turn them heterosexual because heterosexual is better. Well, heterosexuals go to hell too, you know, and um, heterosexuality is is full of all sorts of, of trauma and trials and sin as well. And so I think that we've, we've done damage when we have become prescriptive with um, how we think gay and lesbian people should live their lives. And reparative therapy was that, mm -hmm. um, though it is a secular practice um, and is a very niched practice. And Exodus wasn't a therapeutic organization um, or a reparative therapy organization. We bought into that psychology that we became this way through development and we can undo this through therapy um, and God's going to be happier. And what we found over the course of, of all the years that we were there, uh, 23 for me, um, was that people's orientations don't change. Um, um, it doesn't mean that people don't live different lives or that they can't live different lives. But for the most part, what we found was a lot of people trying to be better so that God would be happier. Um, mm. God doesn't get happier with better behavior um, or different behavior. And so, so many of the men and women who opted to go um, through local ministries or through reparative therapy were as gay at the end as they were in the beginning. But what was different was they were far more full of shame and condemnation and self-loathing, and they'd lost so many years trying to be better for God when they didn't have to be better for God. God loved them as they were. As they were. And and their feelings and their stories didn't change for the better. Mm -hmm. um, and so that was, in the end, you know, Exodus was, was so many things, and it's not to say that that was all Exodus. You know, there were so many places in Exodus that uh, and so many people who went through excess that experienced what I did. And what I experienced was a place that just simply showed up. They weren't perfect and they didn't say everything perfectly and they weren't theologically perfect, which one of us are. But it was a place that constantly pointed me towards Jesus and not towards um, a, a therapeutic model or um, some sort of 12-step program. That wasn't all of Exodus. There were parts of Exodus that did point to a 12-step program, that did point to a therapeutic process. And so in the end, what we realized was for 37 years, Exodus has been this cauldron um, of good and bad. And in the end, what you just have is um, is something that's toxic, that's religious, that's not grace-filled, that's not um, without the mixture of law and grace, which in the end just simply becomes law. Mm -hmm. And we've got, we've got to end this. We've got yeah. to, for the sake of people who have been hurt and harmed and for the sake of the gospel and for the sake of, of moving forward, we've got to close this organization down. We've got to close the good down. We've got to close the bad down. And we've got to say to people, we are sorry. Um, and, and we are going to make sure this isn't repeated. And we're going to make sure that people know that Jesus loves you as you are. 
that wants a relationship with you as you are. Um, no questions asked. He is the most um, welcoming and affirming uh, part of Christianity. He is, he is God and he is good. And though we don't understand it and though we all come at it from different theologies and different understandings, um, the fact is God is bigger and God alone understands this. And so we're going to leave it to God alone. Um, and we're going to do the only thing that we know that he's called us to do, and that is love him and love people. Um, and it's going to be messy, and we're going to risk our reputation, and we're going to be called all sorts of names like heretic um, <laughs> and backslider and whatever yeah. um, for the sake of um, loving God and loving people um, in the way that we believe that he's called us to do. And that's that's where Leslie and I find ourselves today. Well, I love that the subtitle is My Exodus from Fear to Grace, because I think what you're describing is fear. And the fear from the more conservative theological viewpoints are that, you know, you're sliding into universalism, you're, uh, you know, you know, denigrating the gift of grace God gave because he expects us to snap to the holiness routine and, you know, getting all judgy and up in people's business about what they should and shouldn't be while we have a big log hanging out of our own eye, you know, yeah, so yeah. to speak. And yeah. and I think your message of repenting of fear, because perfect love casts out fear and love never fails, you know, being oriented to love and grace most of all and being proponents of making the church for everyone, not just, I think it was your words in the book that said, not just the people who come to church and pretend to be all clean. Yeah. Because none of us are. It's just that some of our sin isn't on display for everyone to see on Sunday morning. It doesn't mean it's not there and God's grace is enough. I have to ask you about this last story because it um, brought me to tears you talked in the beginning of the book about the struggle growing up as a little boy and in your life and and as the story unfolded and your leadership at Exodus ended and just all of it, you describe the moment that you sat down and told your parents the whole story of Alan's vulnerable heart, what he'd struggled with. And um, I think it's often in our stories, you know, that's what I heard when I I watched the Lisa Ling documentary, you know, it was the stories where we get out of our own point of view and go around to the other side and get in the view of someone else's life where we we in those stories of shared vulnerability. It really ushers in empathy um, when we go first with our stories. It helps others to go forward with their stories too, and really builds that bridge to close the gap and foster forgiveness and understanding and even more grace. And so I'd love if you'd close by sharing a little bit about that time when it was your mom's 62nd birthday and you dared to sit down and then out came your dad's story mm. and how that changed everything for you in the years that you had with him after that. Yeah, it was, it was 1993. I'd come home from my first Exodus conference. I, I knew um, the last day of, of that conference sitting in the balcony of this, this beautiful chapel at um, Asbury Theological Seminary in Wilmore, Kentucky um, on a, a sunny summer Saturday morning hmm. um, as I sat there and, and thought about my dad and, and really was just Full of what I'd always been full of when I thought of my dad, and it was anger and, and resentment. You know, he was such a military sort of militaristic style parent, and any good that had happened in our relationship in those um, 21 plus years of, of life together um, were overshadowed by um, any time that he'd raised his voice or um, been. Um, you know, just that drill sergeant in our family. And mm -hmm. I just remember going to God and, and just complaining to him about my dad one more time. And, and I'll never forget. I never, um, I can hear it as clearly today as I did that day, 22 years ago, when God said, I want you to stop thinking of your dad as your, your drill sergeant of a father. Um, the guy who's hurt your feelings and all of those things. And I want you to start thinking of him as your brother, as your equal, as mm -hmm. someone that I love 
and care about as much as I love and care about you. Mm -hmm. And I want you to stop thinking of him as this guy who's out to ruin your life and think of him as a guy who, in many respects, his life has been ruined. Think of the parts of his story that you know. My dad was adopted. His um, adopted father died when he was nine years old. Um, his mother went to work. His Well, and um, he was the product of an affair, right? He was the product of an affair. And then in an orphanage as a toddler. And then in an orphanage. And then his adoptive siblings were alcoholics and um, were cruel to him um, in, in his childhood. And so I, I remembered that part of, of the story. And I just, my anger and my bitterness and my lifelong resentment just mm. broke. And I just thought, wow, I, I, I'm not angry anymore. In fact, as angry and as bitter as I'd been in one moment was how not angry and bitter I was in the next. And it was just like a pendulum. miraculous. Yeah, it was yeah. without the spitting the green goo in the bucket and my head spinning around. <laughs> God delivered me um, in a in a moment um, mm. in a United Methodist Church, um, and it was it was this amazing thing that I knew when I went home from that event, I had to tell my parents this is my story, and they knew part of it. They knew where I was that week, and they knew what all it entailed. Um, but when I sat down with them in the family room where I grew up, and I started off by saying to my dad. You know, I've been angry with you and I've been bitter towards you and, and you haven't been the easiest man to live with, but I just want you to know that I, I forgive you and I hold no malice or ill feelings towards you whatsoever. I know you've had a hard life and I'm sorry that I felt this way and I don't want our relationship to be like this anymore. And my dad apologized and then he said, well, let me tell you some of my story. Mm. And it wasn't that neat and tidy. My dad wasn't ever an eloquent speaker, but he started telling the story, and it was it was almost as if I pulled um, the the cork out of uh, the champagne bottle. It mm. just gushed, and my mom was sitting there. She'd never heard all of the things that my dad said that day. Stories of uh, running away from home and sleeping in train stations only to be arrested for sleeping in train stations when he was 12 years old mm -hmm. and thrown into a jail in New Orleans, hundreds of miles from his home, um, and being in this jail for weeks and weeks and sexually abused repeatedly by the adult prisoner that he shared a cell with. Mm -hmm. And finally, one night, this prison guard who had developed a heart for my dad finally unlocked the, the prison cell and let him out and said, run, gave him some money, gave him enough food and some, a change of clothes and said, run, get out of here, go home. Anything has to be better than this because if you stay here, this man is going to kill you. Um, and my dad ran home and, and went back to his life in, in Tennessee. And my dad's telling this story. And then he goes on to another story and another story mm -hmm. and another story. And I was sitting there thinking, how could I have ever been mad at this man or thought that my cushy life could be as bad as what he's endured? No wonder he's been angry. No wonder. No wonder he turned yeah. to the military. No wonder he wants things just so-so. He's lived in that prison cell for his entire life. Mm -hmm. and Such pain. It was, it was unbelievable. Um, and... From that moment on, we, in fact, that same year, we went and found his birth mother. I, I researched it, found his birth mother, introduced him to, to her for the first time in his life. Um, it was one of the most amazing moments of my life. But what changed in my dad was he, while that prison guard let him out of, of the physical prison um, when he was 12 years old, I think sitting down and telling my dad, my story and helping him work through his own story, let him out of his lifelong prison. Yeah. Um, and it changed his life to the yeah. point that it, he became the most annoying human being on the planet <laughs> because he was so sappy and so sweet. <laughs> and he would call all of us oh. every day and tell us how much he loved us. And for the next 14 years, he was this 
sweet dad, not without his hard edge, but that was just him. Right. But he had the most amazing tender heart. And it was almost like, as I'm sitting here telling the story, it's almost like this, what we learned about God in church growing up, that he was this hard Old Testament legalistic God, legalistic father that you couldn't get close to. But when you understand grace and you understand what Jesus did, you can't see him that way anymore. He's, he's sweet and he's tender and he's good. He's irrevocably good. He's never going to be that angry, distant judge again. All because uh, of Christ. Because he's that's been revealed right. through Christ. And I think that's what happened to my dad. Mm-hmm. He became, even his hard edge became interpreted through this new softness. Um, and I realized I, I can't even be angry or upset or think ill of those memories that I have of him in my past because all I see is this good dad who's always been good. He just didn't know how to express it. And now he does. Um, and so the last 14 years of his life were miraculous. Um, Leslie doesn't know um, any other Robert Chambers than the one that she <laughs> as her father-in-law, who yeah. was the most tender, caring, generous, sweet father imaginable. The one who I think helps me picture our heavenly father um, as who he is, um, a, a good, good, good father who you can absolutely tell anything to and not fear um, that he's going to feel any other way than absolute 100% perfect affection and love for you. Mm-hmm. It's just beautiful, so moving, and so illustrative of how our life can be with God. Well, you write in closing in your book, there, there's no life in condemnation or constantly focusing on what's right and wrong what's good and what's bad, and I could no longer mix the life-giving good news that in Jesus nothing can separate us from God with the deadly message that our good behavior or self-righteousness affects our standing with God. Grace had changed everything for me. Grace was my exodus, and um, I can't agree with you more. Alan and Leslie, I'm so thankful that you uh, spent this time with me. Is there anything you'd like to share or leave as advice or recommendation or encouragement in closing for those who may be today struggling in the mud of same-sex attraction or that lifestyle, um, or those people who have been sort of judgy and not really been as loving or grace-filled as Christ calls us to be, what can you, what can you say to us today? Well, for those who are LGBT, um, the, the thing that Leslie and I live to tell um, people who sit down with us and tell us their stories is, you know what? God loves you. Mm-hmm. A- absolutely. And that's, that is where you start and finish. Um, and I don't have the answers. I don't need to have the answers. Um, the fact of the matter is God is good. He loves you. Um, and and that's, that's the only thing that anyone really needs to know. It will change Everything. Everything. For, for people who um, have been judgmental, um, and even for the people who don't think they've been judgmental, um, I, I didn't think I'd been judgmental, and this was my story, um, but I had been, I was, I still continue to struggle with that, thinking that I know best, or I know right, or I have an answer um, that is superior to someone else's. You don't. We don't. Well, and it's important for us to see that in ourselves. That's the first place to start, right? Yeah. And that's not God's desire or will for our lives, that we're the ones who, who are plugged into the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. That's what caused this mess in the, begin, in the beginning and to begin with. Um, what God wants for us is to love Him, to trust Him, and to love people. And loving people without fear, with complete peace, without anxiety. Um, and I think it's when we, when we love in that way, we're not going to be angry. We're not going to be judgmental um, towards anyone else or towards ourselves. Um, and, and it's just going to simply free us up to live life with people. Um, 
And, and that's that's where we find ourselves. And and Leslie and I can honestly attest to the fact that it's better. Mm-hmm. Um, that it is. Um, we wouldn't go back for anything. We don't want to live where we used to live. Uh, we want to live in the middle of of exactly where we're at today, doing life and living life with the people that, that God's brought into our life and is continuing to bring into our life. And people who, um, who have given us a lot of grace, um, how can we judge them when um, they're not judging us? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so it's, it's, a, it's a wonderful place to live, and, and we're excited to keep doing that. Well, thank you for being faithful to write this message, for being honest and vulnerable and transparent and humble. And uh, may it be uh, the starting place for many of us who are challenged with this topic. And it it is hard um, because we're trying to reconcile what we believe God's Word says with, um, with the topic. But, you know, remembering that God's grace covers all and that um, the sin that I have in my heart is no different than anyone else. And um, God loves us all. Mm-hmm. And so I'm so thankful for your message. The book is called My Exodus from Fear to Grace. And it's sort of like a memoir. I loved I loved your words and I loved your book. And I hope, um, you know, for people who need to understand more or just want a really great story that they'll go out and get your book. Where can everybody find you online and follow uh, what you continue to do in your in your work? Well, we are on every social media outlet you can imagine, but you can find all of that out at alanchambers.org, A-L-A-N-chambers.org. Okay, great. Well, thank you again for your time. Such generous gift of your time and helping us all understand. I'm so thankful for you. Absolutely. Thanks, Jackie. Thank you. Okay. Have a blessed week. You too. Thanks, you too. Well, that's all for this episode. Again, I'm so thankful to Alan and Leslie for joining me, helping us walk through this difficult topic and make more sense of it, and ultimately helping us learn better how to love well. And that's what we should be doing, right? Especially in the month of February. I hope you all had an amazing Valentine's Day, whether you were enjoying a friend, a loved one, a family member, or maybe you had the pleasure of, you know, enjoying a quiet evening by yourself. Sometimes that can be really refreshing as well. So whatever it is you found yourself doing, I hope you had a wonderful time. And as usual, you can find the show notes to this episode with all the links mentioned, including the documentary with Lisa Ling that Alan did and all the other places you can find him. They'll all be at my show notes page, JackieWatkins.com forward slash episode 79. And again, you can get to it easily by clicking on the picture of the artwork of this show if you're in the Purple Podcast app. I think this is a message that everyone needs to hear. And so if you feel comfortable sharing this podcast episode, I would be so thankful. And you can do that straight from the Purple Podcast app. Apologies to those of you who don't use Apple products. I'm sure there's ways to share from Stitcher or from wherever it is you're listening. But if you have the Purple Podcast app, there's three little dots you'll see on the bottom right-hand corner. And you just click on those and it auto-populates a message either to Twitter or Facebook for you to easily share this episode. And you can also text it to a friend as well. Again, I'd be so thankful for you to share this show with someone in your life so they can listen to these muddy stories that people so transparently share and they can know whatever it is they're facing that they're not alone. Now, I'm going to leave the survey open for another week. So if you know of someone, I've had a lot of amazing responses. If you know of someone who wants to give feedback or maybe you've meant to and haven't been able to get to it, you can click on the artwork of this show in your app and I will have a link there for you. And uh, otherwise, you can always get to the survey by going to JackieWatkins.com forward slash survey. I would love to hear your feedback. And if you need regular doses of encouragement, you need some people to walk with you through whatever mud you're you're facing, or you just want to hang out with listeners of this show, we are having such a fun time over at the Facebook page. We're going to get more regular with the posts over there and just interacting with each other. There's some amazing women over there. So if you are female, sorry guys, and you want to uh, interact with us over there, we would love to have you join us uh, for weekly encouragement and just chatting with each other. And so you can find us over there at facebook.com forward slash groups 
forward slash mud stories gathering. So uh, again, thank you so much for joining me today, whatever it is you were doing. I hope you were productive while you were listening to the show. I know that's how I listen to podcasts. I'm doing things while I'm listening. And uh, I count it such a privilege that you join me in this place uh, so that we can link arms and walk through some mud together. No matter what it is you're facing today, no matter where you've been or what lies ahead for you, may we all today find our grateful song to sing. I will see you next week. Have a beautiful day. A never-ending marble fails to press upon my mind and pull the shame that leaves me a little bit blind. I cannot see beyond the blame and I never will find a way out. And then I feel you next to me. You lift my head to see. Your strong arm reaches to me. Your mercy floods my tired soul as you lift me out of my muddy hole. You wash me up with your sweet grace and you lead me to a safer place again. A never-ending mother fails to press upon my that leaves me a little bit blind I cannot see beyond the blame And I never will find a way out And then I feel you next to me You lift my head to see Your strong arm reaches to me Your mercy floods my tired soul song to sing, a grateful song.